into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit. I'm your host, of course, Samson Kovach, and we are working through our series on the Bible. I believe this is number 14 that we are on right now. Can you believe it? I mean, I I start doing these series and I just, you know, I always get overwhelmed with the amount of information that's out there. It's, It's to the point where... I want to get a lot of information to you because there's so much out there and I I want you to hear about it. I want you to know about it. But at the same time, you you start getting a little um, weary when you start getting up into the teens here of, you know, what you're doing. you know, especially on a subject like this with the Bible, because you know, I just want to kind of move along. I just want to kind of, you know, uh, get it over, get it done with, get the information out there, and then you know, move on to the next topic. Because I have all these topics in my head, all the you know, different things that I want to talk about. Um, concept of Godness, for example, um, is something that I would like to you know do a series on, kind of go over. But at the same time, you know, I. I don't want to go too fast. And sometimes I think that, you know, I, I listen back to these recordings and it sounds like I'm, I, I get really excited. And when I get really excited, I start talking really fast and I start putting a lot of information into your ears at one time. So I'm going to try and do my best to maybe slow this down a little bit and talk so that it's easier to follow and understand. And whenever I'm throwing a lot of these concepts at you, that we take the time to sit back and relax and listen to them. But hey, you guys know that that's not me. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really going to make a conscious effort to do that, but uh, I, I, I can never guarantee it. But today, um, you know, I said, in the, I think in the last podcast, I want to talk about inspiration and I do, I want to get to that, but proving inspiration um, also relies a bit on the Old Testament. And I was thinking, you know what, this would be a good time to look at the canonization of the Old Testament, because honestly, you know, if you're in America and you're listening to this stuff, or you're in a country where the, the two prominent um, views of Christianity or within Christianity are the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant churches. The the canonization of the Old Testament is where the big differences lie between a Roman Catholic Bible and a uh, Protestant Bible. So I figure let's talk about that a little bit because what we've been talking about with the New Testament lends credibility to this. Okay, so what I mean by that is um, we've already established that the New Testament is a reliable source, that we can trust what it says. We can trust the words. We can trust the books that we have. We know that, you know, even if you're someone who says, um, you know, every single letter has to be you know, preserved or perfect, the doctrine of preservation that we talked about before, even if you're someone that says that, you would recognize that that perhaps, well, I I really shouldn't say it like that because somebody like that would also think that that 
was the same as the Old Testament um, when, you know, it, it probably isn't. See, there, that becomes a problem. There's a lot of mythology, a lot of fables and fairy tales about the Bible and how we you know, how we got it, how it was preserved, how it's been passed down to us. And here in the theology pit, that's what we're trying to kind of get through. Um, But we need to start somewhere. And by being able to prove that just on a human level, the general information that is found in the New Testament is reliable. And since we can say that it's reliable, then what it's talking about is reliable as well. Or at least we can say, hey, in the first century, this is what people thought, okay? And the the people who are, are thinking these things, the people who are recording it and the environment that they're in where it's being recorded is mostly a Jewish um audience, a Jewish sect, a Jewish Jewish section. Um, I think that there were only one, maybe two um, uh, authors of New Testament, uh, one of the, some of the New Testament books that was not Jewish. Uh, I know Luke, you know, was not, he's a Gentile. And um, depending on who you want to say uh, wrote um, uh, the book of Hebrews, possibility that they weren't Jewish. And if you're talking about the amanuenses also, the, um, the scribes that you know wrote stuff down for someone speaking, um, that they possibly were not Jewish, but they were writing it down you know, from somebody who was Jewish. So their understanding, when, when we look at the, uh, when we look at the New Testament, of what consists of the Jewish scriptures, what they found to be um, holy, what they canonized, uh, that that that's an important clue. So, some of the things that I, I, I kind of want to dispel right now are some of the fables concerning um, you know the the canon. Uh, for example, age determining canonicity, depending on how old it is. Um, that it, it, that's definitely a factor, but not a sole factor. Uh, the language of it. I've heard people argue that the only book of the New Testament that should be accepted is the book of Matthew that was written in Hebrew because Hebrew is the language that God uses and the language that God speaks. And if you have a book that was not written in Hebrew, then it is not to be considered the word of God. There are people out there that actually believe that stuff. Um, that agreement with the other scriptures determine canonicity. That's a big one because you do have other writings, and and you know we've looked at at some of them, and I, I've mentioned some of them at least um, that were written, uh, you know, at contemporary times. Um, you know, uh, First Clement was written uh, during the New Testament. I think it agrees very much with the New Testament, but that does not. Um, put it within the canon. Um, if a prophet or apostle wrote it, then it's canonical. Uh, that's not necessarily true. Um, we don't have the real first Corinthians. So, um, you know, the people didn't consider that uh, part of the canon, part of the scripture. Um, if it's quoted by scripture, 
uh, in uh, you know, Jude 9, I think we, we may have touched on this a little bit, um, you have the assumption of Moses in Jude 9, and that's from the, uh, the book of Enoch. Um, and in uh, Acts 17, 28, you have, um, you have somebody being quoted in there, one of their works being quoted. But the thing is, is that they're not saying that this is something that should be you know, in scripture, it's just being used as a, a reference point. And whenever you're studying scripture too, understanding the difference between descriptive and prescriptive is a pretty important idea. Is, is the Bible, what you're reading, is it describing something that happens like historical narrative and, and just kind of telling you a story or is it prescribing the way that you should live and behave uh, because not all the Bible is prescriptive now a lot of people like to view it as that they like to say well you know the Bible says this and it's like well how how do you th- why do you think that that applies to you and when we get into hermeneutics the art and science of biblical interpretation we'll look a little uh, closer at that but a lot of people have a hard time telling the difference between descriptive and prescriptive, even today. Um, and so, it, it, another one is if it's solely inspired, it belongs in the canon. That might not be true, also, you know. But those are just some of the some of the fables and some of the the things. Now, the the writing of the Old Testament, okay, is from roughly fourteen hundred BC to 400 BC. And I'm saying roughly with this because depending on you know what books you accept. For example, if you accept, you know, the the books of the Maccabees, you know, like the Roman Catholics have in their um, in their Old Testament. Well, the Maccabean revolt um, didn't take place until uh, 167 BC, so it would not fall into that this timeline. Obviously, the um, depending on the dating that you have of. Moses's writings, and he is said to have written the uh, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, some people have said, you know, fourteen hundred years prior. And some have said later. Some have said earlier. So this is just kind of a an estimation. Now, because this stuff was written over. A thousand year period. Okay, you have uh, one thousand years. So from today, think about something that was written in. I mean, this is this is twenty seventeen right now. Think about something that was written in ten seventeen, and you have works that have been written from ten seventeen to twenty seventeen. All right, a little bit of change in technology, a little bit of change in um, culture, a little bit of change in language has occurred in that hundred years. Well, during that time, that same type of time frame, you know, between, um, you know, 1400 BC and 400 BC, you're getting roughly the same kinds of things, you know, that are occurring. And it's not like everything was done being written. And then here we sit, Let's, let's take our timeline, for example. And here we sit at 2017 and we say, all right, now it's time to go through and find out what we consider to be part of our, our canon that we're putting together, whatever the canon's for. It doesn't matter. Our collection of books here. 
What was happening was that over that thousand year period, as things are being written, it's being put into the canon. So it's not like a a, a one shot thing. Same thing was happening with the New Testament, not um, as as readily as soon. And I think the reasons for that is because they were looking for um, the return of Christ immediately. So things weren't being written down right away, um, and then things weren't looked at you know looked at it as like a canonical in in a sense but it definitely did start happening during um the the writing of the new testament that it was being uh canonized at that time um the uh the septuagint and i think we may have touched on the septuagint a little bit um that's that was the copy of the old testament into Greek. And it was done sometime between 300 and 150 AD. And what you had was um, one of the Ptolemies, uh, they wanted a copy of the Hebrew Bible um, for their library. I, I don't think that they were Jewish. I don't think that they were religious at all. But they wanted a copy of these holy writings because in their library, they had a lot of holy writings and they found them to be of value. So they wanted a, a copy made. And the Septuagint, that just means roughly you know, 70, the 70. So there were 70 um, Jewish scholars that got together. And there's, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, stories surrounding this, of course, that, you know, it, it took them either 70 days or 70 weeks. And, um, you know, they made so many, um, translations and when they all came together that the translations were all exactly the same and it was miraculous. I mean, you have all these, these sort of things that, um, you know, I, I would, I would put them on the, on the mythology, uh, section there that, you know, all those things happening. Um, I, that doesn't mean that they it didn't happen. I'm just saying that it sounds to me extremely suspect, and it's not really important uh, for what what we're talking about. The reason why I'm bringing up the Septuagint is because of how important it was for the um, Jewish people at the time of of Christ and the apostles, um, and for people who weren't. Um, native Hebrew. They may have been Jews from other parts of the world. And Greek was the common tongue. Um, most everybody uh, understood Greek, spoke Greek. With the um, the Greeks being in control before the uh, Romans took over and then Latin, uh, many people were, um, I think the term is polyglot. They, they spoke many languages. Um, and so Greek would have been one of them and um, Latin would have been another, most definitely Latin at that time, but probably you know, uh, Greek as well. And obviously the New Testament being written in Greek. And so the New Testament, whenever it's quoting the Old Testament, tends to quote the Septuagint which lends a lot more credibility um, to the argument that when Jesus taught and when he spoke um, to the people at large, he taught and spoke in Greek and not in, um, and not in Hebrew, not in Aramaic, but definitely in Greek. And out of respect for the way that he taught, uh, that's the way that it was written down and that's the way that it was recorded. Um, we see uh, evidence of this Whenever you would have him, for example, um, you know, healing the little girl 
or um, you know uh, reanimating her, however you want to put it. But he goes into her and he says, um, you know, my child, uh, get up and walk, or you know something to that effect. But the important thing is that when you look at that particular passage, it's recorded as him saying it in uh, Aramaic first, which was the little girl's common tongue. But then it's it's translated for us. It says, which means, you know, little girl, I say to you. Um, and, and the question has always been, well, if Jesus always spoke in Aramaic, why is this such a big deal? Or if he always spoke in Hebrew, well, why when he's dying on the cross, is it such a big deal to preserve that in Hebrew when he was saying everything else? But not, you know, uh, but but not explain it you know, almost in like an interlinear way. Well, Jesus said this, and here's the uh, the Hebrew, and that means this. Here's the Greek, or you know, he said this, and this is all in Aramaic. Here's the Greek equivalent. Um, so I think that the Septuagint gives us this. Um, this this insight into what the uh, apostles and what Christ considered the canon of Scripture because you didn't have books back then. I mean, you you, you did, but they weren't in fashion. Okay, there were, a codex was not in fashion. Everything was scrolls. Um, Christians were the first ones to start using books uh, constantly on um, a very uh, wide. Uh, a basis, and I think off, I think very early on, because um, you know books are referred to in um, in the Book of Revelation, and this because of this, if everybody's using scrolls, when it comes to the number of books you may have in the Old Testament, like the Protestant Bible says that there are thirty nine books in the Old Testament. Well, why is there 39? Because some might say, no, there's only 27. Well, how do they get 27 and you have 39? Well, let's say that you have a scroll that's a huge scroll written by, you know, Samuel, for example. I mean, think about First and Second Samuel. Put them together. At some point, the, the scrolls of Samuel broke into two pieces. And then you have First and Second. So, should we put Samuel together all in one book? Same thing with First and Second Kings. Same thing with First and Second Chronicles. Um, you know, should like some of the uh, books of the Old Testament uh, be part of another one? I mean, should something like I don't know, uh, take Esther for example. Okay, Esther is an odd book in the Old Testament because it, it never mentions God once. Um, was it possible that that Esther was actually part of another scroll? that was eventually separated some way or broke off and then just counted as separate. And it's still looked at as inspired. It's still looked at as scripture. But when it stands on its own, it kind of makes you wonder why, unless it was part of something bigger, then that would make more sense. Or if it was part of a a, a collection and, and there would be like a certain term for a certain part of these collections. I mean, there really wasn't anything where it's like, okay, we have a red ribbon that we wrap around all of these scrolls and all of these scrolls that are found in this red ribbon. And that's what the canon is. But there was a tripart division of the Old Testament at this time anyways. Um, and, and still is today. 
the first part of it was the law. And the law was usually consisting of the Pentateuch, okay, the, the first five books. Um, in the New Testament, this is made mention in uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 16, verse 17. It says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Um, and, and we're talking about one stroke. We're talking about jot or tittle, okay? Now, a tittle... If you if you look at um, the the Hebrew alphabet, um, there's two letters that look very very similar: a dalit and a resh. Okay, and think about it like this: think about a lowercase letter R. Okay, but backwards, like the mirror of it. All right, now the R, if it's rounded, it almost looks. Think of it almost looking like like a hook. Okay, almost like a question mark. But if that the the top part of it that's like rounded that's heading down to the bottom, if it goes across just a little bit further than the stroke that's going down, that little part that's going further, that little stroke, that is called a tittle. Okay, that little tiny bit. So when it says not one jot or tittle, what what is being said is that. Even that small little portion that honestly could uh, look like, um, you know, if it's on um, uh, papyrus, um, you know, the the the, it look, the ink could look like it's smeared a little bit and it could just kind of run over. One of the grooves could have taken it or maybe there was, you know, um, a, a, a part of the um, paper or whatever they were writing on that had some kind of blemish on it. Okay, but that's where you know, the importance is saying that, you know, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for this. So the law that God has put down and, and that they view um, the first part of the Old Testament as when they say that everybody gets an image in their head of these five books. Okay, they're not thinking, oh, the law, what do you mean? Um, Leviticus, which is the law or uh, Deuteronomy. Do you mean that? No, everybody understood what was meant by that. Okay? The um when they say the law and the prophets, okay? Uh do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. That's found in Matthew 5:17. So, the prophets had their own section. So when you're talking about the law, or you're talking about the prophets, then you're talking about two different understandings of a grouping of books. When you say the law and the prophets, those are the two that you're talking about. Okay. And then you have a third part, which is the Psalms. So, and, and, and that you get that, you see that in uh, Luke 24, 44. Uh, now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So think about it like this. You know what the Psalms are. If you're not sure what the Psalms are, grab your Bible, open it to about the middle, wherever you think the middle is, and you're probably going to land in the Psalms. Okay. The Psalms there, there's there's a lot of them. Um, Proverbs, I would say, you know, goes in with it. But um, Psalms and Proverbs, okay, these are 
general precepts, okay? They are just general truths to live by and to to understand the world through. Um, there's a bit of um, Hebrew poetry that goes along with them a lot because they are songs. They are things that are to be sung. They do have certain mnemonic devices to them. Um, sometimes, depending on the cadence of them, you could see where it's... Um, you know, like something like a bad, bad, good, bad, bad, good, bad, bad, good. Um, you know, I mean, there's, you know, unfavorable, unfavorable, favorable type uh, structure with them. But they are a different type of literary genre. And they're wisdom literature. And so this is different from what the prophets are saying. And the prophets are not only prophesying, but they're also historical narrative. So they are... And all and both of these are being used to understand and interpret the law. So that's the threefold division that you have in the Old Testament that you don't have in the New Testament. New Testament is historical narrative and then um, pastoral epistles, um, uh, general letters, um, and then at the end, uh, apocalyptic literature. But the, the Old Testament, because of the, the time span, um, this is the way that it's coming about, the way that it's understood. And whenever you're reading the Old Testament, the key to reading it, um, especially from a, a Christian perspective, is to read it Christocentrically, um, you know, to read Christ into it. When we get, again, when we get into hermeneutics more and Bible interpretation, we're going to talk more about um, how exactly we do that, how we, you know how other people have gone about doing it, how um, the apostles looked at it, you know the, those sort of things, how um, Jews interpreted the Old Testament, and how uh, Christians have also through the years interpreted the uh, the New Testament. So, um, as Christians, what we kind of look for with um, the test of canonicity is, number one, does the New Testament attest to its authority? Um, Number two, do extra-biblical Jewish writers affirm it? Three, is the book consistent with other revelation? Four, was it written by a prophet or someone of divine authority? And five, did Christ attest to its authority? Now, number five is a really big one because as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And so he would then have authority to say yay or nay on what the scriptures are. And at his time, uh, when he was uh, walking the earth before his resurrection, there was no New Testament at all. And this is why anybody that says that, you know, well, Christianity comes from the Bible obviously doesn't understand Christianity or the Bible because Christians existed before the New Testament was written. Um, So whenever they're talking about the scriptures, most of the time they are talking about the Old Testament. So when Christ is talking about the scriptures, uh, he's speaking of the Old Testament. So he's putting his authority on that. So the first one that we looked at here, the first question, does the New Testament attest to its authority? Um, we would have to uh, say yes. I mean, you look at you know, Luke um, you know, 24, 44, which we just read, which we just talked about, that um, you know, Christ said about uh, you know, all things written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Um, so, that is an, a New Testament attestation to the authority of the Old Testament. Um, 
and again, to reiterate what we said in Matthew seven twelve. therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. So, uh, uh, you know, that lends credibility to whatever this collection of books is of the Old Testament. And we generally have a, a pretty good understanding of what that is. I mean, just from looking at um, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's a big bulk. That is a big bulk of what you um, would agree with, what what you would have. And this is all of Christendom would have um, this understanding, okay? Um, Protestants and Roman Catholics all agree on the same books, okay? The difference is that the Roman Catholics have what's called the deuterocanonical books or second canon set of books. And that is the one where um, Protestants and Roman Catholics disagree on those particular books and, and what those and, and what that is. So number two, do extra biblical Jewish writers affirm them? Um, Josephus, uh, wrote, uh, how firmly we have given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages, as have already passed, no one has been so bold as to either add to add anything to them, to take away anything from them, or to make any changes in them. But it has become natural to all Jews immediately from their very birth to esteem these books uh, to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them, and if occasion should arise, be willing to die for them, for it is no new thing for our captives, many of them in number and frequently in time, to be seen to endure racks and death of all kinds upon the theaters, that they may not be obliged to say one word against our laws and the records that contain them." Okay, so Josephus, who was a general in the first century during the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, and he he surrendered. I, I don't think he's a very nice guy, but he surrendered, and the Romans then commissioned him uh, to write a history of the Jewish people. And in talking about how they view Scripture and what Scripture is, this is what he was writing. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Okay, and then you also have... After um, you know what Josephus says, the Babylonian Talmud, and this says that after the latter prophets Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, the Holy Script, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. So, the Babylonian tablet, the when they were in Babylonian exile, is agreeing with this four hundred years of silence that um, that the Protestants would agree with, Roman Catholics may not. Okay. Um, Philo also attested to a closed threefold division of the Old Testament, and nothing more was being added to it. Uh, the Council of Jamna, 
Uh, after the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the Sanhedrin was allowed by Rome to reconvene for purely spiritual reasons. And at this council, the present Old Testament books were reconfirmed officially. So the 39 that we have, they backed it up at this Jewish council. All right, 20 years after the, the temple was destroyed. Um, now, number three that we want to hit on is, is the book consistent with other revelation? Um, and the, that, that's the question. Does it contain any inconsistencies or does it contain any contradictions? And these are, this is kind of rhetorical for us right now. Um, they would say, no, it doesn't contain any incons- inconsistencies and it doesn't contain any uh, contradictions. Number four, was it written by a prophet or someone of divine authority? Uh, they would say yes. They would say, um, you know, Moses, who wrote the first five, that um, that he was of divine authority, and you know, whoever finished off um, the the end of the the Pentateuch because it writes about his death, um, that they were under the authority also, um, that the prophets were under authority. Uh, books like Judges is um, you know, historical in nature. Um, you know, so it's more more historical narrative than it is a you know prophetic type thing. But interesting is that within the law, you find out what the criteria is for somebody to be a prophet and say that they're speaking for God. Um, and did Christ attest to its authority? Uh, Don Stewart, in his book *The Ten Wonders of the Bible*, says that since Jesus is the Messiah, God in human flesh, He is the last word on all matters. He had the divine authority to endorse all Scripture or only some of it. He universally affirmed all Scripture in every part as the divine word of God. Okay. Now, when we 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 talked about um, the Gnostic writings in the New Testament, and that they were something in addition. That you know, uh, Protestants and Catholics and most all Christianity does not accept. Okay, but the the word for them would be uh, apocrypha. Okay, which is hidden writings. Now we don't use that term because that term is usually um, set aside for this period right here. When we speak of the apocrypha, we are speaking of what the Roman Catholics would call the deuterocanonical books. But the Roman Catholics do not accept all of the books of the apocrypha as deuterocanonical. They accept some of them. They accept first and second Maccabees, but they do not accept third and fourth Maccabees. And I believe that third Maccabees actually, the timeline actually comes before first Maccabees or or, or directly after it, where fourth Maccabees may be in between what we have as first and second. I know that sounds confusing, but um, yeah, timeline-wise, that's kind of you know where it is. So the apocrypha, a working definition that we have, it literally means hidden writings. Um, think graphia uh, is is the word for uh, writing. Um, and so this describes uh, the group of writings mostly written in Greek during the intertestamental period from 400 to 100 BC that are contained in the Christian Septuagint and Latin Vulgate and accepted by Roman Catholics and some Eastern Orthodox scripture, but rejected by Jews and evangelical Protestants. Now, how can some people say that, well, if the Jews rejected it, then how can you accept it? Think about like what happened with the Jewish people, okay? They rejected God. 
they rejected Christ, who is God in the flesh, their their Messiah, the only one that could be sacrificed uh, for their sins. Um, their temple was completely destroyed. They could no longer make sacrifice for themselves. Um, they were uh, completely thrown out of their land. They weren't allowed back in their land. They, they, the people who call themselves Jews today, who call themselves Israel, um, that are in the Middle East right now, didn't get that land back until, I think, like 1949. So if they're not getting their land back until 1949, this is a pretty good indication that they've been accursed by God. So why would we listen to the people who have been accursed by God in what they say, especially when they come together at a council 20 years after they have been judged by God? And it's been shown that, you know, what they believed was wrong and their temple was destroyed and it was an abomination. I mean, there's some interesting stuff. Whenever you read through Josephus and you read through those wars, interesting some of the things that he talks about and, and some of the things that that happened or that people um, say happened uh, in it about like, you know, hearing voices of, of, you know, the, um, the voice of the Lord saying, let us leave this place. And, and, you know, uh, I think it was like a great wind or something leaves the temple before it's completely burnt down and destroyed. Um, but uh, that's of, I don't want to say a very good reason, but it's a very understandable reason of why somebody would reject what the Jews would have to say on this particular subject. Uh, if it looks like they've been accursed by God, why should we believe what they're saying? Um, again, this, the alternate name is, is the Deuterocanonical, second canon. Um, Proto-canonical would mean first canon. Um, and it's in contrast, of course, to the Deuter Deuterocanonical. And this refers to books of the Old Testament that have already been accepted as scripture. And that's proto-canonical. Pseudepigrapha refers to rejected books that are falsely attributed to an author. So that's why, you know, when we were looking at the New Testament, we were talking about pseudepigrapha works. And um, and when we refer to them in that, and, and not as apocrypha. But ap apocrypha could be used um in the same way and apocrypha and uh, apoc apocalyptic um they are two words that can get uh, mixed up in people's minds so you know when people are talking about this listen to what they're saying and you know hopefully they get the terminology right but even if they don't just pay attention to what they're saying and you'll you'll be able to look at the difference between you know uh, apocalyptic and apocryphal so um the Greek, Greek Orthodox Deuterocanonical is different from the Roman Catholic and um, the uh, Protestant Apocrypha. So we'll kind of go through these here. What is accepted as, well, and, and this is like loosely accepted because the Protestants don't accept any of these, okay? Um, but the Roman Catholics do and the Greek do, but... But there's some that they don't. So here, here's the thing. I'm going to go through right now the um, the Roman Catholic deuterocanonical works that that are accepted, and um, then I'll go through the Protestant ones and tell you which ones aren't uh, you know aren't accepted by the Roman Catholics. So the Roman Catholics accept the Book of Tobit, Judith, additions to the Book of Esther, uh, the Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus also called Sirach, um, uh, uh, Baruch, 
the Epistle of Jeremiah, Prayer of Azura, Story of Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, Maccabees, well, 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees. So there's a dozen there. There's 12. Um, Bell and the Dragon, I mean, they're, they're interesting to read. Like, I, I mean... I think it's good for historical um, reasons to, to read these. Uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't view them as scripture, but I, again, I don't have to. Um, but Bell and the Dragon, I really um, enjoyed that story. I, th- I thought it was pretty neat. Um, so with the Protestants, they would hold to um, something called First Esdras and second Ezra's, okay, which were actually um, the third and fourth Ezra's, which would go, I guess, with Ezra, okay, if that makes any sense. Now, the Protestants say that's part of the Apocrypha. Roman Catholics would say they might not even say yes or no on that. They would just say it's definitely not deuterocanonical. This is not something that the Council of Trent uh, dealt with, okay? Everything else that they have... Um, they would accept, except for the prayer of Manessa. Okay, prayer of Manessa is separate. So the Protestants would have two more that they're looking at, and depending on how you know they broke some of the stuff up, um, maybe three more. So you're looking at um, you know fifteen books in the Protestant Apocrypha, possibly um, sixteen. Okay, a a copy of a, a Protestant Bible that would have all of this in there um, is the um, revised, I think it's the Revised Standard Version or the New Revised Standard Version. And it's a great copy to have, um, a great copy of the Bible to have. I don't like the fact that it's, um, that the, these books are scattered throughout the Old Testament. I wish that they had their own separate section um, and, you know, and like a nice introductory piece on, on what they are. But, you know, um, I, I, you can understand where it gets kind of dicey when you hand somebody a, a book and say, this is the word of God. And then, um, you know, but might not all, all of it might not be, you know. So the Greek Orthodox Church, they would agree with the Protestants on uh, first Esdras, which would be the, the third Esdras, uh, but they would disagree on second Esdras, okay? And they also, Roman Catholics disagree with them on that. They hold to the prayer of Manessa and third and fourth Maccabees and an extra psalm, Psalm 151, Okay, that um, that's the psalm that neither the uh, Protestants or the Roman Catholics hold to. So the um, the Greek Orthodox would have uh, let's see one, two, three, four, five more than the Roman Catholics hold to. Okay, so since they have five more, that's seventeen for them. Okay, so as you can see, whenever you're numbering um, these sort of things, it's it really starts getting up there. And this is why some of their books are a lot bigger. Um, the New Jerusalem Bible um, is a Roman Catholic uh, translation that I enjoy. Uh, there's lots of good Roman Catholic translations out there. Um, there may be some bad ones too. I don't know. I, I don't usually compare them, whether or not it comes from um, Jerome's Latin Vulgate or if they made an attempt to actually go back into... Um, you know, as close to the original writings as they could get to. And, and I'll talk about, you know, where we get our um, earliest original copies from 
of the Old Testament. Um, so the categories in the uh, Deuterocanonical books are split in the three groups as well, historical, religious, and wisdom books. So historical would be your Maccabee books. Religious would be um, Tobit, Judith, Susanna, uh, the additions to Esther and Bell and the Dragon. Um, the wisdom books would be Ecclesiasticus, also known as Sirach. Um, Wisdom of Solomon, Baruch, Prayer of Manasseh, Epistle of Jeremiah, and the Prayer of um, Az- Az- Azariah. But like I said, um, they did not accept the Prayer of Manasseh uh, in there. But if they did, it would be under Wisdom Literature. So, some arguments for the inclusion of uh, these were that... Um, these works were included in the Septuagint from 300 to 150, from which the New Testament writers often quoted, from which Paul quoted from the Septuagint many times, and it was the primary text for the author of Hebrews. So, that really lends a lot of credibility to um, keeping these deuterocanonical books in there. Again, if the Jewish people are the ones that are rejected by God because they turned their back on God and they were destroyed, and you think, well, who cares what they say? Let's go back to what the apostles were saying, and they are directly quoting from the Septuagint, um, and the Septuagint include these books. Why shouldn't we include these books? I think it's a fair question. I, I, I really think that that's a good point. So, the next one is that several um, deuterocanonical works were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this early this evidence is an early acceptance of the deuterocanonical books. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, if we haven't gone over them, were scrolls that were found in the 1940s, I believe, um, uh, around the Dead Sea in the uh, the Qumran sect, and this is where the Essene community um, lived. The Essenes were the the group of people um, that were uh, they were like end time people, apocalyptic people. They had a particular hermeneutic that we'll talk about later on when we get into it, um, known as Pesher, where they believed that everything that was written in the scriptures was written about them and for their time and directly uh, for them, so they could see it being fulfilled. So among their literature they did have their own apocalyptic literature that was being written, but they had a lot of copies of um, Old Testament books also that were preserved from, you know, when they uh, died out in, you know, the probably early first century uh, until, you know, the the 20th century, uh, well-preserved. You know, they came from, if if you remember your Maccabee story, if I talked about it at all, um, there was a a group of people, think about them, that were like the religious um, authority at the time. And after the uh, temple was... um, was sacked and the abomination of desolation occurred by Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, and where um, you know human sacrifices were made and pigs were sacrificed in the temple, and and they just got all you know upset about it. And then the Romans came in. Um, the this group of religious leaders split off into three different groups. Uh, one of them was the Essenes, who said, you know what, the new temple that was built was um, you know built with the help of the Romans and this half Jew Edomite of the of the hair 
Herods are being put into place and we no longer can truly worship at our temple because it's been so preserved or it's been so perverted that they went off on their own and uh, around the Dead Sea and, and formed their own sect. The other two groups formed into the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, and you read a lot about them in the New Testament. And this is why they might have thought that... Um, you know, Mary was an Essene because one of the virtues of the Essene community was um, virginity. Uh, even within marriage, you remained a virgin, um, which is one of the reasons why they died out, you know, pretty quickly. But it's uh, it it's, lends the credibility to this particular sect covenant if Mary was from um, that particular group that would explain why her and Joseph didn't have marital relations and why they had no other children and um, that Jesus was kind of a fluke. So when he's called the son of Mary, it's a pejorative. It's it's not seen as something that was very endearing to him. Um you're pretty much saying that, you know, she was a slut or that she was a vow breaker or, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, now I know people are probably screaming and flipping out and saying, why? No, Mary had other kids. And, you know, look at this. That's a different subject that we can, we can get to later. I personally don't think that she had other kids. I think that she remained of a virgin. Um, if it's, if it's proven that she wasn't, it doesn't, doesn't disrupt my theology at all. Um, but I believe me, I, I stand in good company. Um, John Calvin believed that she was ever virgin. Martin Luther believed that she was ever virgin. Um, through the history of the church, people believe that she was ever virgin. Uh, we can get into the discussion between, um, Adelphos and Anepsion, uh, you know, different language between, um, cousin and brother that was used and, and frequently and, and infrequently um, the, how they were used and uh, the cultural significance. That's a big deal. If, if you want to write me about it or call me about it or text me or like whatever, I, I, look, I've looked at all of the arguments. I, I understand that. Help yourself if, if you'd like to. Maybe there's something I haven't seen, but um, it really doesn't matter to me. The whole point is that this group, um, the Essenes, uh, that they had these writings that were found, and among them, within the Dead Sea Scrolls, this um, very you know devout religious group that people extolled at the time, uh, they really held up, um, had these deuterocanonical works among uh, their manuscripts scripts, along with uh, a lot of other stuff. Uh, early Christians reflect some knowledge of the De deuterocanonical books, and certainly the early church fathers use the works authoritatively, even sometimes quoting them as scripture. You look at Clement of Alexandria, he quotes um, Tobit, Sirach, and um, Wisdom. Origen uh, quotes the epistle of Jeremiah, and Irenaeus quotes Wisdom. And um, just so we get kind of an idea of, of who uh, Irenaeus was, um, you had uh, John the Disciple who had a disciple known as uh, Polycarp, and Polycarp had a disciple known as Irenaeus. So he's only a couple generations away, and yet he is, um, you know, he's using the Deuterocanonical books. Um, many official church councils included it as part of the accepted canon of scripture. Um, Rome, uh, the Council of Rome in, in uh, 382, Carthage in 393, and Hippo in 397. And we talked about them before when we talked about the looking towards the um, the early church and the church fathers as you know historically accepting uh, the books of the New Testament. And these are the councils that we go to. 
to, especially Carthage and Hippo. So when you try to use Carthage and Hippo to say, this is why only these books in the New Testament, then it's hard for you to turn around and say, we reject those councils when it comes to the canon of the Old Testament. It, you know, it, what, what you looked at as a positive thing is now like, I've just turned it on, on your head for you and made it a negative thing. Um, it says that Martin Luther presumptuously deleted it from the canon in the 16th century because it contained elements of theology he did not agree with. Now, that is a judgment call that you would have to make whenever you study um, uh, historical theology in order to say, you know, is that something that he would do? Is that in Martin Luther's character? Quite possibly it could be. I'm not saying that he did do it or that he didn't do it. I'm saying that there's better reasons to, um, to reject it. And, you know, here's some of them. Uh, it's disputed whether or not these books were included in the Septuagint for many reasons, okay? Like I said, the Septuagint was, you know, 70 Jewish scribes and scholars that got together and translated the Old Testament into Greek, but it wasn't like a book. It wasn't like one book form. So the earliest copies of the Septuagint that we have are Christian in origin and were not copied until the fourth century. So it's hard to tell if the original Alexandrian Jews had this wider canon. And the three extant copies of the Septuagint do not agree concerning the canon. So that becomes an issue as well. There was no table of contents. So let's say, okay, we have, uh, oh, all right, what did the Septuagint say? Um, well, where do you go to? Well, there's really three main uh, groups of these writings, and not all of them agree on which books are to be in them. So that kind of puts a, uh, a monkey wrench, so to speak, in it. Um, let me see here. I was kind of looking through my looking through my notes to see if I needed to kind of add anything in there. I hope that um, you know, this has been helping a lot. Um, Philo was a, a first century Jewish scholar in Alexandria who used the Septuagint ex- extensively. And he didn't mention the Apocrypha, even though he commented on virtually all the proto-canonical books. The same can be said for Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who we talked about earlier, who used the Septuagint extensively, who explicitly states that the Apocryphal books were never accepted as canonical by the Jews. Um, Many works were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are not Canonical, Like I said, they had lots of their own uh, apocalyptic literature in it. Um, knowledge of a work does not make it authoritative. We discussed that. Um, early cr- Christians did quote from Deuterocanonicals uh, from time to time. The earliest Christians showed no evidence of accepting them as scripture. It was only when the Christian community began to break ties with the Jews that their inclusion became an issue. The earliest Christian list of books in the Old Testament is that of uh, Melito, Bishop of Sardis in 170 AD. It contains the only proto-canonical works, the Protestant canon. 
Hippo, Rome, and Carthage were all North African or Roman local churches, church councils that did not have the authority to declare the canon. Again, that doesn't stop us with the New Testament, but it seems to put a halt on the Old Testament here. Uh, Augustine, uh, the North African Bishop of Hippo, accepted the Apocrypha, although slightly different um, than the Roman Catholic version, and had heavily and had a heavy influence upon these councils. And this could probably explain their acceptance within these councils. Martin Luther rejected the Apocrypha just as many others throughout church history had done. There was no official infallible declaration on the canon by Rome until after Martin Luther rejected them. It was an overreactive response to Luther's rejection that caused the Roman Catholic Church to declare them to be scripture at Trent. Until that time, they were doubted by most and labeled either apocryphal or deuterocanonical. And even calling them deuterocanonical um, says that this is something in addition to. This is not found in the, in the earliest sections. So, you know, the Roman Catholics, in a way, are saying that, yeah, look, this is a, a second set that's that's come along later. And if you try to make the argument that Martin Luther threw them out because he didn't agree with them theologically, you would have to make the argument that they were included to begin with. And if they were included to begin with, why aren't they proto-canonical? Why are they deuterocanonical? And if they are deuterocanonical, are you accepting them because they support particular a particular theological doctrine that you would like them to support and some have said that um, there are parts that support the concept of purgatory and we'll maybe we'll have to do an, an episode on purgatory sometime uh, and you know what it is and uh, why the Roman Catholics believe it but um, you know that door swings both way that that sword you know cuts on on both sides so uh, a list of some of the church leaders throughout history who um, rejected part or all of the deuterocanonical apoc- apocrypha books uh, origin athanasius jerome gregory the great who was the uh, pope of rome um According to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, he must have had the unwritten tradition that included the canon rejected the book of 1 Maccabees as not being historical. Um, the, um, the historian and doctor of the church, the Venerable B.D., um, in his commentary on Revelation, listed Old Testament books to be 24 in number, the same as the Jewish and Protestant canon, again, because of the splits in in um, the books you know, themselves. Uh Let's see, Hugh, uh, Hugh of St. Victor, John of Salisbury, um, Hugh of St. Cher, Nicholas of Lyre, of Lyra, sorry, uh, William of Ockham, Cardinal Casey, uh, I can't read that last name. Um, anyways, um, we're, we're coming to the uh, end of the podcast here. And I'm going to have to extend the Old Testament podcast into um, another one uh, so we can just uh, discuss it a little bit more. But thank you for listening to The Theology Pit. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, you know, you can get a hold of me on Facebook at The Theology Pit. You can email me, samson at samsonstick.com. Um, you can check us out on uh, Patreon and uh, make a donation on the page if you like. Um, become a Patreon subscriber. I don't do too much with it, but I, I probably should 
start you know picking up the pace there with uh, content that I'm putting out. Um, you can go to samsonstick.com and re-listen to all these. You can listen to uh, past podcasts. Everything's archived in there. And I really appreciate you listening to The Theology Pit. Don't forget to share this with your friends, uh, to tell people about it. And if there's any uh, subjects that you would like me to cover in the future um, that I can give consideration to, I most definitely will. But hey, this music is getting louder. And right now it is definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you.